Tonight on Farage, we discuss, is it right that from Monday morning, people from the US and the EU, if they've had two jabs, can come into the country without quarantining? The Royal National Lifeboat Institute have decided to have a pop at me today. I'm going to respond here live on GB News. And I'll be joined in Talking Pints by Colonel Bob Stewart, DSO, Member of Parliament for the Conservative Party for Beckenham. And we'll be talking all things military. As the pandemic began to take hold, it was clear that in Europe... It was northern Italy where the problem was at its most acute. And I had friends there, and I was talking to them, and they were really, really scared about this new virus that had arrived, hospitals filling up, barely able to cope. And on a Sunday morning in March, mid-March of last year, in Lombardy, a decision was made to lock down the region. It seemed almost extraordinary that in peacetime, in a Western country, something called lockdown had happened, but it had. And what I couldn't believe was the response of the British government, which was on that very day to allow 17 flights of tourists to come in from Milan's Malpensa airport to airports all over the UK without a single person being tested, being given any advice, let alone, let alone being asked to quarantine. And that situation went on for months. We finished up, in fact, in the first half of last year with 18 million people flying into the United Kingdom without a single person being tested, and many of them leaving airports like Heathrow, getting on crowded London underground trains. I, I have to say, of all the things that have happened in this pandemic, I think I was angrier at the government for that than I was for anything else. It was a new virus. We had no idea how serious it would be. Uh, and the British government, frankly, dropped the ball. Well, fast forward to where we are today. A decision has been taken that from 4am on Monday, you can come into the United Kingdom and you can fly in from an EU country or from the USA. And after 4am Monday, provided you can prove that you've been double jabbed, provided you've got a negative test before you fly, and provided you were given assurance of taking a test here on day two, you can fly into the United Kingdom and do not need to quarantine. Why is this important? Well, I'll tell you what. If you go around the west end of London today, uh, it is empty. There's no-one there. And that's because the foreign tourists are not in London and not in many other parts of our country. It is estimated that the loss of that tourist trade is costing the British economy, an amazing £639 million a day. Quite how they managed to get figures as accurate as that, I don't know. But it's costing us a very great deal of money. So does it make sense to open up to those that haven't been jabbed? Well, in business terms, it really does matter. There's only so much you can do on a Zoom call. Face-to-face -face meetings, getting together with people, bouncing around ideas. There's, there's no doubt in my mind that that matters for businesses. There are also families that have been cut off from their relatives, cut off from their loved ones, uh, who, who I'm sure are desperate, you know, to get back and to meet with them. And I guess there's a whole generation of youngsters who uh, perhaps have forgotten what going abroad on a summer holiday really is. So for all of those reasons, and given that we're assured that this vaccine does make us that much safer, that's what governments all across the Western world are telling us, and there is indeed some evidence that backs that up. For all of those reasons, I guess I'm in favour now. Much as I was in favour of shutting down at the very beginning, I'm in favour now of what the government has decided to do. There's just one slight problem, that we're saying yes to the USA, and they, thus far, have not shifted their position at all. You or I, as a UK citizen, we cannot go to the States unless we quarantine for a fortnight in what they deem to be a safe country. I went earlier in the year... I spent a fortnight on a Caribbean island before I would be allowed to go into the USA. So we're putting this on the table. We're giving this offer to Americans without anything in return. On balance, I think this is the right thing to do. I think we've got to get on with our lives. We've got to get our economies moving. I think this is the right thing to do, but I've no doubt it comes with some degree of risk. Well, joining me now is somebody who I guess will be very pleased 
with this decision, director of Cornwall Airport, Newquay, and former managing director of Monarch Airlines. Tim Jeans, thank you for joining me here on GB News. Hi, good evening, Nigel. Hi. Good evening. Now, I'm guessing that for the airline industry, for airports, for the travel trade, uh, this must be very, very good news. Well, it is good news because the economy in places like Cornwall, but Scotland, Ireland as well, um, effectively the, the, the loss of inbound tourism from abroad has paralysed our, our businesses, paralysed our local economies. Um, and although it's come very late in the season, possibly too late um, to save this year, any step forward like this, which recognises that, unfortunately, we are going to have to live with this virus. And that applies whether you're in England or in Europe. Um, the reality is we've got to get on with it, uh, as you say. And from next, next week, that's going to be the case. Do I get a sort of slight hint from you that perhaps you feel the government should have done this sooner? Well, no, I'm not going to be critical of policy as we've seen it at the moment. There was, remember, let's, let's not forget that, that until May, um, cases were still high. Until very recently, um, cases were rising at an alarming rate. So I think the, the timing is sensible. Um, if the timing, as far as the tourist uh, industry is concerned, is not the best, but we have to start somewhere. And there's no doubt that there will be some recovery in September and October, particularly in cities like London and, and Birmingham and Manchester. But the, the, certainly for coastal resorts like we, we have in Cornwall, um, it probably has come too late because, for example, none of our charters from Switzerland or Germany, for example, will be able to restart this year. But it does at least give those operators a chance to plan for next year, certainly in the knowledge that the, uh, the resorts will be open and the accommodation will be as, uh, as we, we planned to uh, have it to welcome people from overseas. So presumably with Newquay, where you are now, it's people coming in for the surf beaches? Oh, people come from all sorts of things. The Germans are attracted by the Rosamund Pilcher novels and the sights and, and, uh, and sounds for, for, from those. Um, yes, the, the, the Swiss similar reasons, but also the surfing and the countryside. There are a myriad of reasons why people would come to Cornwall, just as they would come to elsewhere in the UK. Yeah. Um, people, people love the wide open spaces and we look forward to welcoming them back. And they're going to be coming. And as you say, for many, uh, for many, many holiday operations, it's come a little bit late, but, it's, but it is still at least good news. But what do you make, Tim, about this American situation? You know, we are making this offer to American businesses, to American tourists. They can arrive on Monday, and I'm sure they're going to come. I mean, you know, they will come, I'm sure, in very big numbers once again. And yet, we as UK citizens have had no reciprocity that I can see from the Biden administration whatsoever. Is this the government being a bit weak, or is it the right gesture, and hopefully it'll provoke the right response? Well, I think this government has got to look after this economy, our economy, um, and so welcoming or being able to welcome tourists from America is absolutely vital, particularly for cities like London, and, and, but elsewhere like York and Edinburgh. Um, so the, the government can only do what they can do. Um, if the Biden administration wants to do something different, you have to, in a sense, you have to ask them. But as far as I think the UK economy is concerned, I think most, if not all, people will be welcoming the gradual and sensible reopening of borders. Remember, people have got to be vaccinated. They've still got to make sure that they can prove that. And that, just as it has done for us, will hopefully make them and, and of course, by extension, us still remain safe. And is there somewhere within you and within people in the airline industry, the airport industry, tourism in general, is there somewhere just that slight concern that as more people start to move around the world, not only is there a greater risk of the virus spreading, but, and this is perhaps the kicker, a greater risk of variants coming in from other countries? Nothing that we do, in a sense, from now going, going on is going to be risk-free. There are, there are no risks. Um, obviously, they've got to be quantified and, 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 uh, uh, and, and, and well-researched well risks, but nothing 
in the world of travel uh, is going to be quite the same again, I think, for yes, several yes. several years. Yes, uh, I can. So we I have to look at the, the risks, uh, take them as they uh, uh, as they come, and hopefully we remain yeah. safe, but we've got to go into this eyes wide open. Well, I think that's absolutely right. And Tim Jeans, thank you very much for joining us. And, well, good luck to everybody. I know that so many uh, companies in the travel sector have been at or near the verge of going bust. Let's hope this works. Let's hope we don't get some nasty variants. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Grapefruit. Thank you. Orange juice. Now, interesting. We're being encouraged okay, to get the vaccine. But... Some government ministers, even very prominent ones, are going much further than that. We were told to begin with that they weren't going to introduce vaccine passports. It's now been made very clear that we will have to have vaccine passports to go to nightclubs from the autumn and to attend sporting events if there are going to be more than 20,000 people in the crowd. Uh, it's even been hinted uh, by Michael Gove that having a negative test the day before you go to a nightclub, won't be enough. Now, whether this is the government doing its best to try and get young people to get vaccinated, it's their way of bullying them, perhaps, into doing it, or whether this is a government uh, that is taking central power just way, way too far, is something you must decide. And on all of these issues, on opening up to the US and the EU, on whether it's selfish not to have a vaccine. I'd love your views, so please let me know what they are. GBviews at gbnews.uk, and I'll happily read them out. You can also send in your barrage, the Farage questions, which, as you know, I read out having not seen them before. Haven't tripped up yet, but at some point I know I will. But is it selfish not to have a vaccination? We'll just watch the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, Michael Gove, speaking on this very subject yesterday. People who can't be vaccinated, I think that certainly mandatory testing is um, uh, uh, a useful tool in our armory. Um, but uh, uh, ultimately, if you can be vaccinated and you refuse to, that's a selfish act. You're uh, putting other people's lives and health at risk. You should get vaccinated. So there we are. It's a selfish act. And when Boris Johnson was pushed on, pushed on this today, he didn't use the same language. Um, uh, is, 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 is Michael Gove going completely and utterly power mad? Or medically, is he right to say what he's saying? Well, there are questions of health. There are equally questions of liberty and choice. Well, joining me now is Dr. Rene Hunderkamp, a writer and a GP. Rene, uh, this is quite strong language, isn't it, from a very senior cabinet it, minister? It really is, Nigel. And it's not language that I think is helpful. Um, and I think in the long term, it could actually do more damage than good. Yeah, I've been wondering about this because it's the younger people who seem to be in larger numbers reluctant to take the vaccine. And the argument that I've heard yeah. is we're at very little risk from this disease. So why on earth... Should we take a vaccine that might do us harm? There is a small percentage chance that it could do you harm. And kind of someone like Mr Gove telling them that they absolutely have to do this. I mean, I think it could make young people just stick two fingers up, couldn't it? I think it could. I think it could push, push people over the edge because they think we're trying too hard. And why do we have to try so hard if it's so brilliant? That would be their first view. And I've listened to people on the radio today saying exactly that. And what worries me as a doctor is that we have an act absolutely fantastic vaccine regime in this country for children. You know, we have really good uptake across Europe. And, you know, apart from a few blips here and there with MMR, MMR we've really convinced people that the childhood vaccine and rollout is a good thing to do. And I'm a mum of a two-year-old. I've done it. She's had every vaccine in the book. And I think that we need to actually use our skills as professionals to convince people of the safety of any vaccine that we ask them to take. The moment we start bullying them into it, which is what we are doing, Doing with language like selfish, we actually put all of that at risk, including future childhood vaccines, because people will lose trust in us. Let me ask you, as a mother who's quite happy with MMR and all the normal vaccines that children have, and which, without any shadow of a doubt, uh, have made a huge change in the last hundred years to infant mortality. Yes. No, there's no question about that, absolutely. But are you comfortable 
with young children getting the COVID-19 jab. Is it necessary for children no. to get this jab? No, I'm not. And I've been very clear on this. So first of all, let me say that in terms of COVID, the vaccine rollout has been amazing. We've done it very, very well. And because we know that there are a group of people who are vulnerable to COVID and it can kill them, for those people, it is a no-brainer. Why would you not have the vaccine? That's number one. So if you know that you're in an at-risk group and the group is big and it's we know who it is, it's an absolute no-brainer. Go off, get your COVID vaccine, make yourself safe. In terms of children, we know that children do not get sick from COVID. My daughter had it when I had it. She had a fever for an hour and I wouldn't have even known if I hadn't just checked it. She was as right as rain. But we know she's got antibodies, so she definitely had it. So, you know, there are risks of the vaccine. And we're seeing those. We're seeing in Israel and in the States where they're actually rolling this out from 12 year olds up, that we're having myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart. We don't know what the long term implications of that are, even if they get better. And some of them have not got better. And there is reportedly one child death from myocarditis. Why would we risk that ever as a parent when we know that COVID itself isn't going to do that damage? It isn't going likely to kill our child. I just yes, don't understand but, that, no. Uh, I mean, I understand what you're saying, but the number of people who get a vaccine who have a side effect is still very small, isn't it? Yes, it is very small. But when you're talking about a group of people who won't die of the disease itself, then as a doctor, we're told to do no harm. So surely the risks outweigh the benefit in, those, in that yeah. group of people, in children. Yeah. yeah, that's a very powerful argument. And, you know, I've heard some people say, well, we need to vaccinate children to protect the adults. But I thought in civilised society it was the adults that were there to protect the children. I do worry though, that Michael Gove could possibly extend the logic of his argument uh, to children. And I sense, uh, René, I sense uh, that come September, there's going to be a very major debate, very major debate, um, about whether we vaccinate school children or not. But can I just move on to a separate subject? Um, you've heard today the announcement that from 4am Monday, people who've been double-jabbed from the EU and the USA can come to the UK whether it's on business, whether it's on family, whether it's on, you know, for purely tourist reasons. Uh, do you have a concern that people travelling in from lots of different countries, is there a risk that we start to see new variants coming into the UK? So, look, if we look back to last summer, Nigel, it was very clear that people travelling all over Europe did not bring in variants in major numbers. They didn't. And we've okay. seen around the world that variants will develop wherever whatever country and however tight the borders are, because that's what a virus does. It evolves and we will grow our own variants. So actually, I think on balance, looking at the hospitality and the travel industry as a whole, which are amongst our biggest owners, and bearing in mind that this isn't just about pilots flying planes or air stewardesses, it's an entire industry of people supplying that, in, that industry, from the caterers to the mechanics, to the storage, to the baggage handlers, who need to put food on their table, who need jobs. And without jobs, poverty evolves. We've already got 700,000 more people in poverty in the UK than we did before this started. And we know as health professionals that poverty breeds ill health. So we need to actually start weighing those up, those long-term harms against the immediate ones. And I think if we vaccinated all of the people who are at risk from this, then we need to say, look, it's time to open up, it's time to live with it, and we need to get things moving again. Thank you very much, René, for joining us on that, and some very powerful words spoken there about the vaccination of very young children and an argument being made there by a GP that actually there's more risk in vaccinating that group because they're never going to die of this disease anyway. And that's going to be a huge debate, I think, as we head through the summer and into the autumn. In a moment, uh, we'll talk about the Gurkhas. There are some Gurkhas on hunger strike in Whitehall as we speak, and I will respond to the RNLI, an organisation that I've supported and raised money for for decades, who seem today to have had rather a pop at me. Well, I asked you to tell me what you thought about the debate we've had so far, and indeed you have. Kev says we should not be opening our borders to the US or Europe as yet. 
Well, that's fine, Kevin. I understand caution, but surely at some point we have to get the world moving again. William on email says the new quarantine exemption rules make no logic. Rates of infection in the US are rising precipitously, and yet the government has decided to grant them quarantine-free travel. This smacks of pandering to the airlines and tourism operators to the detriment of British citizens. Well, look, you know, no one's saying this is completely without risk. There is, of course, risk in it. It's a question of what the balance of that risk is. And Kay says to me, Kay says to me on email, it's all very well letting people come here from abroad, but are they really going to be checked before going through? We've been very lax so far with the checking. Lax? Goodness me, we let 18 million people in last year without checking a single person or even giving them any advice as to whether they should quarantine or how they should travel. So lax is an understatement. I understand that the plan is that the negative COVID tests will be checked before they board the airlines so that we don't get massive queues at Gatwick, Manchester, Heathrow or wherever it may be. Although, of course, border force is understaffed. And you know why, regular viewers to this programme, because they've been transferred to Dover to deal with the massive migrant influx. Scott says to me, free movement of people between the UK, USA, Canada, Australia and New Zealand, please. I can assure you there is not going to be free movement with New Zealand on Australia for a very, very long time. And finally, William on email says, the new quarantine exemption rules do not work. Rates of infection are rising quickly in the States. I understand all of that. Interestingly, in the States, we've also got a situation where fewer people are now taking the vaccine. Now, a story uh, that I've been covering, which I suppose is a byproduct of the channel Migrant Crisis, surrounds the RNLI, the Royal National Lifeboat Institute. It has been around since 1824. It is an organisation that I have the most massive admiration for. I have stood outside Liverpool Street Station when I worked in a city, you know, with a box, collecting money for the lifeboats. I once even held a British beer festival with a colleague of mine in a square in Brussels uh, where we got some barrels of beer over um, and we raised money for the RNLI. I am a supporter of the work they do. They go out in dangerous conditions, they save people, they rescue people. And that's all to the good. I've given them money personally too. I believe in the RNLI and I know many people involved with it. What I have said over the course of the last few weeks is that it is to be regretted that the RNLI in Kent particularly, partly in East Sussex, increasingly is becoming a taxi service for the illegal gangs pushing migrants across into the English Channel, has effectively become an arm of border force and that this is leading to division within coastal communities, questions that are being asked by RNLI crew. Uh, and that it's a problem, because people who give money to the RNLI are asking themselves, do we really want to give money for this? Now, I don't need to be told any lessons about the values of the RNLI or the need for it to raise money. I've been involved in it. I also don't need to be lectured by anybody about the dangers at sea. I was involved in a rescue two men in the water towards the end of last year. You know, I held this guy's hands. I wasn't sure he was going to make it. He had the early stages of exposure. I understand those that are coming here illegally are still human beings. Of course, I understand all of that. But I worry, I worry that the RNLI is doing the wrong thing. And today, I spoke to two lifeboatmen today, one of whom said, when the pager goes, you know, he knows it'll be migrant boats, but he goes and takes the call, he goes to sea. He said his anger was at the French and British authorities for doing so little that was leading to so many people taking risks with their lives. I spoke to another lifeboatman today who, after 15 years of service, and remember, these are volunteers, after 15 years of service, has resigned his position with the lifeboats because he's trying to run a business. Um, and we've seen instances of yachts breaking down, not being attended to, fishing boats whose engines are broken, washed up on the beach, not being towed away. 
And in response to me saying all of this, the RNLI have hit back. They've posted these videos showing the lifeboats out rescuing people. Yes, we know that's what the lifeboats do. But they've got a bit further than that. They've clearly, head office in pool, have clearly employed a PR company. And what PR companies try to do is find some victims or find a victim and find somebody who is the baddie. I wonder whether the RNLI have used the same PR firm that Harry and Meghan are using. Because the victims are people working on the lifeboats and we're told they're having abuse shouted at them by members of the public. I can't say for certain that hasn't happened, but I can assure you, I haven't said any abusive words to members of the lifeboat crews. I feel sorry for them and for their predicament. But the baddie, of course, is me. It's me daring to say, daring to say, and there we see The Guardian, you know, daring to say that the lifeboat service was being used for a different purpose and had become an arm of the border force. So I'm the baddie that's led to this situation that means horrible things are being said about lifeboatmen. I've seen it all before. I've fought against corporate organisations many, many times. All I can tell you is a very, very large number of people in our coastal communities are deeply disquieted by what's going on. And frankly, if I was running my own business on the south coast and I repeatedly kept being called out to sea to rescue migrant boats, which frankly, frankly, ought to be in many ways the job of the Border Force and the Royal Navy, who, rather than bringing them into British ports, should be, frankly, returning them to French ports. If this was costing me, as a businessman, that much money, I have to say I would consider my position. I have no desire to pick a fight with the RNLI. All I was doing was pointing out the truth. But if you, the bosses in pool, want to pick a fight with me, that's fine by me. I fought people bigger and uglier than you in the past. Now, moving on. The Gurkhas, this extraordinary breed of men who've been with the British Army for a couple of hundred years, uh, who have a fearsome reputation as fighters, and yet it's appeared over the years that we haven't treated the Gurkhas really very well. Big campaign that Joanna Lumley launched for the Gurkhas, and, and this was really to get them uh, better accommodation, better pay, better rights. Well, there's a new campaign, and the pictures you're seeing now are opposite Downing Street today. There's a group of Gurkha veterans. They're there on a hunger strike. It's a short-term hunger strike. They're demanding justice for Gurkhas. And the argument is that anybody that served in a Gurkha regiment since the 1st of July 1997 is entitled to a full British Army pension. Those that served before 1997 are not. And the Gurkhas feel aggrieved about this. Well, joining me to talk about this issue and, and, and just where our relationship is with the Gurkhas is the former chairman of COBRA and British Army commander in Afghanistan, Colonel Richard Kemp. Richard, good evening and welcome. Thank you for joining me here on GB News. Good evening. Great pleasure, Nigel. So we did get some justice. As I see it, we did get some justice for the Gurkhas a few years ago. But why did the group who'd served the British Army pre-1997 not get a fair deal? Or is it more complicated than that? No, it's not, it's not more complicated than that. I think it's all about penny-pinching by the government of the day and penny-pinching still by the government now. And I think... These Gurkhas deserve, the ones who served before 97, deserve to get the same deal as those who served afterwards in pension terms. We, we paid them considerably less than we paid British soldiers back then, uh, and their terms of service were, were completely different. Grieved about this. Well, joining me to talk about this issue and, and, and just where our relationship is with the Gurkhas is the former chairman of COBRA and British Army commander in Afghanistan, Colonel Richard Kemp. Richard, good evening and welcome. Thank you for joining me here on GB News. Good evening. Great pleasure, Nigel. So we did get some justice. As I see it, we did get some justice for the Gurkhas a few years ago. But why did the group who'd served the British Army pre-1997 not get a fair deal? Or is it more complicated than that? No, it's not, it's not more complicated than that. I think it's all about penny-pinching by the government of the day and penny-pinching still by the government now. And I think 
these Gurkhas deserve, the ones who served before 97, deserve to get the same deal as those who served afterwards in pension terms. We, we paid them considerably less than we paid British soldiers back then. Uh, and their terms of service were, were completely different from British soldiers. Uh, and in fact, only recently were they given the right to come and live in Britain after having fought for our country. You said a couple of hundred years, you're right. Well, the first Gurkhas served with the British Armed Forces in 1814 uh, in, in India. And, and since then, they've, they've fought in the First World War, the Second World War in very large numbers, the Falklands campaign, Afghanistan, Iraq, the first Gulf War, pretty much every single war, apart from Northern Ireland, that Britain's fought in. So they deserve a great deal better deal than they're getting now. And are they going to get it? I would, ho I would hope so. I think, I think the government, most governments, not just this particular government, most governments, when it comes to matters of defence, they try, because these aren't big electoral issues, they're not big vote-winning vote issues. Yeah. So, generally speaking, they try and shove them off as long as they possibly can. And then... When, they're fight when there's so much pressure comes from, say, the media, such as yourself, they're eventually forced to cave in and give it. And it looks very grudging of them. It's very, I think, it's, you know, there's been, I've been involved in various campaigns for, for, for justice involving British troops. And it's really, I think, quite sad when you see a government refusing to go along with it and then eventually um, agreeing, which look, makes them look, you know, not, not just penny-pinching, mean and, and unwilling to give back what has been given to, to them and to our country by these people. I agree with that. Let's hope uh, that this little combination of us discussing it tonight, and by the way, no other media is talking about it, so thank you for coming on and doing it, and let's hope this does apply that little bit of pressure for what is frankly a paltry sum of money. Richard Kemp, thank you very much indeed thank for joining you. us. So, my What the Farage moment... Overnight, we learn that police in this country are buying up boats. No, I'm not making it up. I'm really not making it up. They're buying up dinghies so that the traffickers won't be able to get any more of them. What are the National Crime Agency doing, wasting taxpayers' money, buying up dinghies? Well, yes, of course, they'll push up the price, uh, which means for those who want a family holiday to an estuary would like to buy one of these vessels, will find it more difficult to do. Uh, they may stop the traffickers getting some of those boats, but, I mean, what do they think, the police? Do they think that the Chinese will stop manufacturing these boats that they're making such great profits from? Frankly, yet again, we see a complete waste of taxpayers' money in some desperate attempt to stop the fact that 9,250 people have illegally crossed the Channel already this year. But here's the story that really did once again have me choking on the cornflakes. Wait for this. It's not April Fool's, it's true. The UK government is telling councils up and down the country to display EU flags, yes, in towns and city in England, as a condition for receiving high street COVID recovery cash. Guidance issued to local authorities by the Communities Ministry this summer says the blue and yellow symbol of European uni unity is required to be displayed around every piece of signage, pavement, sticker, temporary or public realm adapt adaption funded under the, under the scheme. So the requirement says that we've got to have thousands of EU flags flying over this country on official buildings this summer because the European Regional Development Fund has given £56 million to the UK to help with COVID-19 reopening. Now, we've had Brexit, we've had a withdrawal agreement, and yet we're still going to take £56 million from the EU and put that wretched flag that I thought we'd seen the back of up on public buildings. I tell you what, uh, government, better idea than that. Just reduce the amount of money that you're still paying them. Don't take the £56 million and let's not fly that wretched flag. Anyway... That's what, uh, that's what government's been told. I simply find it very, very difficult to believe. In a moment, I'm going to be talking to Conservative Member of Parliament, Colonel Bob Stewart, DSO. He's the Conservative Member of Parliament for Beckenham. I think he could be the least politically correct Member of Parliament today.
on Talking Pines is Colonel Bob Stewart. He won the DSO. He commanded British or UN forces, actually. He, he, UN forces in Bosnia. Uh, so he's seen a few things there that we're going to talk about. And you're now a Conservative Member of Parliament after all those years in the army. Uh, Bob, you're an unusual beast in Parliament today mm. because 20, 30 years ago, chaps like you with distinguished military service were two a penny. Mm. Uh, they'd served in the Second World War or whatever it was. Not many of you now in Parliament, I wouldn't have thought, with military experience. No, really weird, isn't it? Because, you know, the normal default position for army officers is to loathe politicians. Yes. So I'm, I'm, I have a certain amount of um, SH1T from the regiment for being uh, a, a politician, and I can tell you uh, it comes in quite a barrage, for a, like Farage. <laughs> and what, I mean, you know, you were in the army a long time and you, mm. you, you finished up with a big job in Bosnia, mm. which was a pretty unpleasant place to be at the time, where some terrible things were happening there just, just 30 years ago, isn't it? Well, the, the only thing I can say about that is that uh, my men and some women saved one heck of a lot of lives in Bosnia. And, um, you know, someone said to me, well, you saved a lot of Muslim lives. And I said, no, I didn't. I saved human beings. And oh, I didn't do it. The, every, all, all of us did it. It was pretty horrid at mm. times, some of the things we saw. But, my goodness, I remember one thing. When I was being told by the Ministry of Defence, we might have to withdraw you, and I said, well, I'm not sure that's a great thing, I spoke to the men, and they said, we're not leaving here, sir. We're doing... We are saving these people's lives. Mm. We're not leaving here. And I just thought, my God, I might be faced with a mutiny if I... I mean, I might just have to go with them and do a sort of <laughs> Captain Bly... No, what was it? A, a Fletcher Christian, Christian thing. Yeah, yeah, and go yeah, with yeah. the men and say, we're not leaving. <laughs> I, but it didn't come to that. In the end, we were never ordered to withdraw. You did your military service. You mm. got the DSO. Uh, which there aren't that many of again these days. And, and so well done you for all that service you gave the country and the job you did in Bosnia. What propels a guy like you to decide that running for Parliament is suddenly a good idea? Well, I've always been quite good at bullshitting. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, there we are. The first, We're the first the requirement... He's very naughty. He's very, very naughty. Very, very <laughs> big requirement of a politician to be able to speak in public, and that's what I mean. Yep. And I enjoyed that. I enjoyed debates. And I enjoyed a bit of politics. I've always been a Conservative. Um, so have you, by the way. You Really, you're a Conservative at heart. You can well, come back, well, Nigel. No, I mean, you can I come was, back. I, you can come back. Well, I mean, I'm hearing Michael Gove, mm. you know, today, not sounding like a Conservative, sounding mm. like a sort of old-style Stalinist statist. Yeah. I mean, it's all quite worrying, isn't it? Well, uh, Michael's trying to do the best. I mean, it, we don't quite know where all this is going, but they're, they're, the government is trying to do its best. Uh, and uh, I'm not in the government, but, my goodness, I'm quite glad sometimes when some of these decisions are, be, are having to be made. The one thing I will say, and I've spoken to Boris Johnson about this, he doesn't like any of these restrictions, none whatsoever. Mm. He doesn't want us to have COVID passports. But why, so why are we having them? Because but he's the, he is being, he's because, the Nigel, because he's getting all this advice from the so-called experts. And if it goes wrong, it's not you, it's not me, it's him yes. that will take the just bus. As it was, just as it was you in Bosnia. Yeah. That's what leadership is. Yeah. And the, really, the question I'm asking you, and Boris is a very jolly fellow mm. and all the rest of it, is he a leader? Yes, he is, actually. He's also, he's also a leader that wins elections. That's uh, different. That's that, different. But, but, you know, and that is what is required. You can't be a politician if you're actually not going to be in the lead at some stage. And that's... I mean, you know that. No, I'm sorry, I'm I, putting the boot back yeah, in no, to no, you. No, but I just think he's more of a cheerleader than a leader, and a very good cheerleader, and, and, and good at spreading optimism and all and of those things. And he's actually pretty good on the quiet, you know. People don't see Boris Johnson on the quiet, because it's all sort of flamboyant and that yeah. sort of stuff. But, my God, um, Boris Johnson is a good bloke, OK? okay? And that's the reason why the north of England has often said, well, we're not particularly keen on the Conservative Party, but, my goodness, we're yeah. like Boris. 
Yeah, and Brexit has transformed the landscape. Well, of, of, <laughs> uh, come on, so yeah. you are very much involved in that. Bre yeah, no, no, uh, no, Brexit's changed everything mm. in terms of, of, yeah. of, of parties yeah. and how we vote. But, Bob, I must ask you this. We've had a Conservative Prime Minister since 2010, mm. and yet we have seen pretty much all through those years, quite relentless cuts to our armed forces. Mm. I mean, the British Army now is, I think, smaller than it's been since the reign of Queen Anne or something like that. Uh, how's it been for you, sitting there as a backbencher, watching what's happening to the services? Bloody painful. And I tell you why. When I joined the Army, I, was, I went to Sandhurst in 67. I was two years training. I was out when I was 20. I joined my regiment, the Cheshire Regiment, the best regiment in the British Army, of course. Of course. Uh, of course. <laughs> and um, the regiment was 750 strong. When I commanded it, you know, 26 years later or whatever, yeah. it was 525. It's still called a battalion, a regiment and a battalion. Mm -hmm. And what's actually happened to the armed forces is they continue to call it an army. An army is technically over 100,000 personnel. We haven't got that, certainly not in uniform at any one time. So if you ask me what it is, it's very, very painful. And most recently of all, actually, the battalion, the regiment I commanded, has lost one of its two battalions. Mm. So that really hurts. So am I, am I happy about it? No, I'm not. Can I see us doing it another way? Well, to be honest, my point is this, and I've made this in Parliament. When I understand that we're never going to fight, fight a war again, Nigel, like we did the Second World War, it's all going to be about cyber and artificial intelligence and satellites. But we'll, all still, the but we'll still need men. Yeah, well, and, and here's women. the point. That, that stuff is the future, mm. which is, might well be a future war. But we haven't fought an all-out war, perhaps Korea, since the Second World War, but every operation we've been on, every single operation, yeah. has required manpower, mm. and we've actually cut the manpower down. I'm sorry to criticise the Ministry of Defence on this, and I know they don't have a choice, and I know the government may not have a choice, but you asked me the question, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I tell you, it yeah. bloody hurts. Yeah, yeah. Okay? No, I'm sure it does, but the government does have a choice, actually, and it seems, it seems that defence... Uh, the armed forces, despite the way the public feel about them, which is huge support for mm. the people that, ser that, that, that serve in the armed forces and for veterans mm. too, uh, it seems to be quite a low priority. When you look at the world in terms of the threats, potential threats that we face, mm. countries that we face, what worries you looking into the future? The Chinese. What's happening in China and the expansion of China seems to be really threatening. What's happening in the South China Sea, mm -hmm. the threat against Taiwan, the islands being occupied, the Paracels, you know, and yeah. the Spratly Islands, and military bases being put on there, their armed forces expanding at one heck of a rate. They're moving into the Indian Ocean and even moving into the Arctic. Um, why? Why? Why are they doing that? And um, they, we haven't well, mentioned I think we Hong Kong or other. Yeah. I mean, yeah. frankly, um, and then the attacks on our, uh, you know, intellectual property, the stealing of intellectual property, uh, and the attacks on our industry as such, which could be. So it worries me. So you've asked me that question, yeah, no, and, no, I, no. and the answer to me is what the Chinese are doing, because actually they're buying up more and more of our industry. They already owe. Um, own a huge chunk of American industry, and that is worrying. No, well, you've given a very strong answer on that. And in interestingly, I've talked in the last week to Vince Cable mm -hmm. and to Stanley Johnson, and they take the view: well, China's the big dominant economy, and 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 that's where the money is, and we have to compromise on these things. And uh, I have to say, I'm rather more in your camp on this. Well, Stanley's a great guy. I'm really great. I'm not yeah, going to. Yeah, he's I just mean, wrong. You know, he's wrong. <laughs> yeah, he's not. Here to and he's and not here to himself. Is but... plain wrong. <laughs> plain wrong. <laughs> so, what happens to you politically? We've got. Boundary changes coming up. Sit. Yeah. I think your seat, Beckenham, is, is, is that subject to a few changes? Yeah, a bit sad. I mean, it looks like it becomes much more of a, uh, a marginal. But we'll fight it. We'll yes. fight it hard. Um, and, you know, Beckenham must not...
be anything but conservative. Right. And you would support that, wouldn't you? I might ask you to come and campaign for Well, you me. never know. I you... might just come and tour a few pubs with you or something like well, that. Well, we've I done the, the, the Two Doves <laughs> yeah. is one where... Yeah, no, I, know. I, I like it very much indeed. <laughs> yeah, don't worry, I know it. So the plan is to stay in politics. Yeah, to, I want to... Keep to going. Uh, the plan is for me, as long as I'm fit and as long as I've still got my marbles, and mm. I think I have so far, yeah. I really do absolutely enjoy the privilege, and it is a privilege, yeah. uh, of being a Member of Parliament. I still, every time I put my big fat bottom on that green leather, I think, you are very lucky to be here. Are you sure they've chosen the right guy? <laughs> you still think that? I still think that. Um, you know, <laughs> and I do like talking in Parliament. As I say, I like... Yeah. I mean, bullshitting was a joke. Yeah. I do actually like it. Yeah. It is a wonderful language, challenge. Well, second warning, three strikes, you're out. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, so, go on. Is that a bad, yeah. a bad word <laughs> these days? Um, um, but, but, but how do you... I mean, you are not a career politician. You've gone into politics mm. after your main career. And I think people like you give something back. You've got expertise in, in a certain mm. area. How, what's it like for you being surrounded by careerists straight out of Oxford with a degree in PPE? How do you get on with that lot? Well, I think they're very amusing sometimes, actually. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I remember sitting, sitting next to Sir Peter Tapsell, who's the oldest... Mm. You would remember Peter. Yeah. What a great guy, you know. Um, and he'd been there since the mid-50s. And I remember thinking, I was sitting beside him, and I said, right, I'm so... I'm going to get really going... I'm going to have to say something now. And he turned to me and he said, I wouldn't if I was you, boy. Just shut up and sit down. <laughs> I took his advice. Um, now, some of these people don't shut up and sit down. Mm. They actually go straight in, and they, they shouldn't. They should actually just calm down a bit, some, on do, both sides. Do you get on with the career politicians? Well, mostly. Um, I find it difficult sometimes with some people who are so obviously ambitious. Yeah. Um, I, the people I dislike are the people that have no time... For others, you know. And in Parliament, when you have a new intake, Nigel, for the first three months, everyone's charming to the mm. staff, the mm. doorkeepers and the rest of it. Yeah, as they should then, be. As they should be. And then some people start to believe the publicity and they start ignoring them and actually, in some times, being slightly rude. That's a mistake because one day, one day, yeah. those guys will be required to help you. And if you haven't been particularly kind to them, they'll let you down. Yeah. Why wouldn't... Yeah. Yeah. I would do the same. And it's what you deserve. Well, Bob, keep doing what you do. Keep being as politically incorrect as you possibly can be. That's how I introduced you before this interview. You haven't uh, have us... I not? Have no, I you haven't let me down at all. I'm <laughs> absolutely <laughs> delighted. I'll go back. And now I'll be pinged, not by the NHS when I get off this call, but by the Chief Whip. Yeah, well, <laughs> once again, the Chief Whip will have words to say. Uh, but, Bob Stewart, thank you very much indeed for joining us here on Talking Pines. Right, it is time for Barrage the Farage. As you know, you send your questions in, and I have not, I promise you, seen them before. So let's give it a go. Douglas on email says, the brave men of the RNLI being politicised in this way is disgraceful. Yes, I wasn't trying to politicise them, I promise you. Uh, I... I just feel sorry for them for what they've got to do. Roy says, sorry, Nigel, I agree with most of your views, but I can't blame any government minister for trying to stop the spread of the virus. And on this occasion, I agree with Mr Gove. Well, as they say, it's a free country. I just find something about the tone of Michael Gove here just to be over the top, dictatorial, and that's perhaps why Boris Johnson didn't actually agree with him or didn't use that same form of words. Gordon on email says, I write regarding our baffling approach to those who help us. In particular, we should allow Gurkha soldiers and Afghan interpreters who served and helped respectively the British Army. Why are we not allowing them sanctuary? Bob Stewart, I must bring Bob back in. He's still here. Uh, does look a bit rum what's going on with the Afghan interpreters who must have taken, in some cases, huge risks. The same thing happened to me in Bosnia when I wanted to bring some of my interpreters back and we couldn't do... We did actually bring some. They should be brought back 
but they should be checked out to make sure that they are really actually in sure. danger. And that's the first thing. And as for Gurkhas, in a nutshell, for goodness sake, it's such a little amount of money. Pay it. These guys have served us, as you say, for over 200 Absolutely. years. Absolutely. Here, here. Heather says, every single person who I've spoken to only got the jab because they wanted to go on holiday or to the pub. How selfish is that? No talk of protecting anyone. Well, look, you know, I must be honest. I mean, I, I had the vaccine. I had no reservations about it. But my primary goal in doing it was I want to go back and forth to America, which at the moment, because of the Biden administration, I can't do. If another friend of mine was still in the White House, it might be different. We'll discuss that another day. Chris on email asks, Nigel... If you had to choose one EU member state city to visit for a holiday, where would it be and why? It would have to be somewhere in Italy um, as a city, Milano, and I could travel out for the day and be in the Alps in an hour and 20 minutes or whatever it is. And Italy, it's chaotic. It shouldn't really work at all. And that's what makes it so completely and utterly wonderful. Um, Liv asks on email, what was your favourite movie during lockdown? I don't think I watched any movies during lockdown. Do you know, what I did in lockdown was I got out and exercised and lost a whole stack of weight, cut down my drinking so that I could come back here and be fit. Now, the International Monetary Fund, another one of these globalist organisations based in Washington, D.C., you know, set up as part of a new world order, uh, but they're with the best of intentions. Uh, and I clashed with them in a big, big way because they broke their own charter when they got involved in backing the bailouts for Eurozone countries. Should have been nothing to do with the IMF, but, of course, the big political globalist project of the European Union and the Euro had to be defended. They then gave us repeated predictions that Brexit would be a complete and utter disaster for the UK economy. Overnight, the International Monetary Fund have told us that the United Kingdom will have a faster growth rate next year than any other developed country in the Western world. Yes, another doom-monger, fear-monger uh, that has been proved to be completely and utterly wrong. So let's end this programme on that happy, upbeat note. Yes, of course, as a country, we face all sorts of problems. The pandemic, well, large elements of it are still with us. But hey, you know what? We're doing pretty blooming well. Tonight is COVID really all over, bar the shouting, as one minister is said to have claimed. Also, the English cricket captain calling for the ashes to be shelved, a COVID necessity or a victory for snowflakes. And why Americans can't decide if their new space telescope can really be named after a man who stopped NASA employing gay scientists. Hi there. Well, sorry to be a, a bit of a broken record. Last night I brought you the story of how race made life hard for women in my hometown of Bradford. And tonight I'm going to do the same story, but in a subtly different way. See